Welcome to Carolina True Crime, a podcast presented by WMBF News in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, where we take a deep dive into infamous crimes from the Carolinas, some with clear endings and others where mystery remains. Today we have part three of the Bigham family, the conclusion of the story of the family linked to many murders over a hundred year period in Marion and Florence County, including those of their own family members. Today I'm the one telling the story, talking with our anchor Audrey Bisque, and we're talking about the trial, or actually trials, of Edmund Bigham. Audrey, do you remember where we left off in the last one? Right, so Bigham is charged with five murders. Mm-hmm. His all family members, right? Sister, mother. Brother, and then sisters, two adopted boys. Exactly. And he goes on trial now for the first murder. Right. His brother, Smiley. Um, we recommend that you listen to the first two podcasts because there's a lot to this story, mm-hmm. right? And it's sort of been evolving over um, the 100 years before all this happens. So the trial begins, if you remember, the murder took place January 15th, 1921. And amazingly, the trial begins March 25th. So just two months later, he's on trial for murder. This is a huge deal. Remember, this is a wealthy family. Everybody knows them in town, for better or for worse. You know, they're sort of infamous, I think. Um, So there's hundreds of carriages and buggies, and the courtyard is just, I mean, the courthouse is just packed. People just are like, you know, trying to get in. They're standing all around the edges. Um, Edmund always called it a circus, you know, that from the beginning. So it starts off and um, Edmund testifies his version of what happened. He's very um, sincere and theatrical. He cries because his defense and his defense team's theory is that Smiley murdered the other four and then killed himself. And if you remember, Smiley was found in the woods with a gun in or near his hand. Right. That, you know, it's the same. It was staged. Exactly. That Edmund is suspected of having staged. So, um, May, his wife, you remember he was married to a woman named May from the upstate and Mm -hmm. he had two daughters. So, um, May testifies after him and the two books remember that I based all of my research on were Catherine Bowling and uh, J.A. Ziegler both have two books about this family both have a book about this family and Catherine Bowling is really quite dramatic about May's testimony she um she comments on the fact that May had a white handkerchief in her hands and that it was never crumpled (laughs) like basically that she was just like Stoned, mm-hmm. very, very calm. Yes, I saw my mother-in-law, um, you know, with blood or whatever on her. Um, lo- a lot of denials, a lot of, that never happened. I don't remember. I don't remember. I don't remember. Um, so, their daughter, Louise, the oldest daughter, who's 14 at the time, also testifies very much like mm-hmm. her mother, calm. They seem sort of um, coached. Right. You know? 
Like, why aren't they shedding a tear and using the handkerchief? Right, right, exactly, exactly. And another thing that's happened in between the time that Edmund's been arrested and now is that um, May is actually caught trying to smuggle things into jail for him, to Edmund, two things that he asked for. And one of them is Ipecac. Have you ever heard of that? No. It's an old um, remedy for uh, nausea. Oh. And I think it actually either makes you feel really sick or makes you throw up. I remember my grandparents talking about okay. it. The other thing that he asked for is chloroform. Do you know what that is? <laughs> if you no. if you think about like old um, detective movies or you know old crime movies when they kind of hold a white handkerchief over somebody's face and they and they pass out. Oh yeah, ask them to start breathing it in. It's ba- exactly. So basically, it's something that knocks you out. Okay. So. Why is yeah. May trying to smuggle these two things into the jail for him? One theory is that he plans to take the Ipecac to look like he's sick, and when a uh, jailer comes to check on him, he chloroforms him and escapes. Oh, my God. So she's caught before that ever happens. <laughs> okay. um, but, you know, they do ask Edmund why he wanted these things, and um, he says that his family has a history of not being able to sleep, and that this old doctor prescribed chloroform to the family. I mean, it sounds like pretty crazy. There's always a reason. He's There's, so exactly smart, unfortunately. Yeah. He's not in a good way right. with this. Absolutely. Um, and he's like, you know, I couldn't sleep in jail, so I just needed a little chloroform to go to sleep. So kind of crazy. Um, and the solicitor and all this. So we've talked about it before, I think. But in South Carolina, they don't call it a district attorney or a DA. They call it a solicitor. So the guy who's prosecuting this is a guy named um, L.M. Gasky, which or Gasky, Gasky. It's, it's it's still a name around here. Yeah. Um, and in fact, I mean, I, I might I need to look this up again. But I think Jimmy Richardson's mother was Gasky, who's oh our current gosh. solicitor. Isn't that interesting? Yes. But total side <laughs> note. So. Um, he's known for being a really amazing solicitor and, um, you know, just really good at his job. So he asks Edmund why, you know, about the Ipecac and everything. And one thing Edmund says is, I don't have to tell you why I wanted the Ipecac. Like, okay. When he's on trial. When he's on trial, yeah. Well, you're, you're sort of on the, you know, <laughs> the bench here. You're supposed to be um, telling the truth. So. One of the first people to testify is this guy named Mr. Garrison. He is one of the first people outside the family who um, shows that he was visiting his daughter down the road and said as, as, he, as he's leaving, he um, one of the daughters is standing out kind of by the road motioning him to stop. He did. He I guess he was on a buggy. He hitches his horse up. Um, and at the same time, Mr. Bostick, who is the postman, the, you know, the mailman also arrived. So they both testified to seeing Mrs. Bigham, old Mrs. Bigham, Dora, lying on her back in the yard, and then a little boy dead on the front, mm-hmm. on the back porch. So um, they carried Mrs. Bigham inside, and she was a large woman, about 200 pounds or so. So, you know, they lift her inside, to bring her inside, and um, they ask him what may is doing during this time you know where is edmund's wife and he says well the whole time she's lying on her back on a bench on the front porch with her face covered up like i guess like a handkerchief or something over her face and the little girl's just crying next to her um 
So, I mean, obviously this would be a very disturbing scene, but kind of a weird reaction, like right. to be lying down on a bench with your face covered. I, I, I don't know. That image kind of stuck with me. Um, and one question they keep going back to is, did Edmund seem to be acting normal, like one who had just lost five family members? Okay. And um, Mr. Garrison says, yeah, he did. He, he was very upset. You know, uh, Mr. Bostick, the postman, testifies a similar story. Um, he, um, one thing that he mentions is when they, when they saw Miss Bigham lying there on the ground with his blood around her, that her false teeth were lying beside her. Oh, the visuals of the... Right? I know, exactly. Um, you know, this trial almost a hundred years ago is still yeah. so visual through their testimony. So, um, and he says, yes, Edmund was distraught. He was crying. You know, it was, he seemed like you would expect him to seem. Um, George Steele is the next witness. He's a wealthy banker, a mill owner, farmer around the area, very well respected. He gives the same story, um, but he also testifies that Edmund said that his mother said to him when he, when he came up, Smiley has killed me. Kind of a weird thing to say, right? It, it's yeah. sort of Shakespearean, you know? In, yeah. in, in, um, Shakespeare. Smiley has killed me. Right, exactly, exactly. I am dead. You know, like, th- that's kind of how they did it in um, Shakespearean plays to, to show when somebody was yeah. dead. So it, it seems a little over the top. Yeah. Um, and he, um, he also says, um, well, they asked him if he had noticed anything weird about Smiley's mind recently if Smiley had been acting weird because George Steele dealt with him and, and he's the guy you need to remember for later just George a little Steele. bit yep um and he said no Smiley seemed normal um and 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 then he says that Edmund asked him to go look around the outbuildings for his sister and the other McCracken boy right because they haven't found them at this point mm. at this point back then on January 15th they are saying that you know, in Edmund's testimony, Smiley's killed them. Smiley's gone off somewhere. They, they haven't found him either, and they've only found the mother and one little boy. Okay. So he asked him to go look around the out the outbuildings and everything, and Mr. Steele says, but I didn't hunt. <laughs> so, uh, so I think that's interesting. And later on, um, they asked him um, why he didn't. And he said, because uh, I was afraid the one that did this was still around. Would find him, get him. Right. Yeah. And whether he thought that it was, you know, a, whether he thought it was Edmund or not is unclear. Okay. Um, so he, Mr. Steele's there till eight or nine that night. And they still haven't found, this is like three o'clock that this happens. They still haven't found the sister or the other boy. Um he was like, Edmund, have you been to her room? Remember Marjorie? They all lived in the same house, yes. in this old house together. And nobody had been upstairs to look for her. So Edmund and another man go upstairs. And um, Edmund starts crying again. And he, and he, and he calls out to Steele, you know, Miss George, come up here. And Steele goes up and he says he sees Marjorie, quote, lying on the floor, dead of a bullet wound in the temple. And there was more blood than I ever saw come from anyone in my life. Oh, no. So, again, that visual, you know. This is Steele saying this while he's on the stand. He's explaining this. Exactly. Okay. Yep. Um, 
Next up on the witness stand is a former police chief named Ham Haynes, which is such a great old Florence <laughs> Marion name for a police chief. Ham Haynes. He said that uh, he got to the house about 8.30 or 9, and that he discovered Mac McCracken, who was the older boy. He was eight years old, Marjorie's adopted son, behind what he calls the Potato Hill, which I guess is like when they get potatoes out, they just kind of pile them in this place, you know, because, yeah, because they'll stay good for a while. And Mac, the little boy, is actually still alive. So they wrap him in a quilt and take him inside. Um, Dr. Poston is up next. Um, He says they all had head wounds. Marjorie and Leo, um, Leo's the three-year-old boy, had been killed with a single shot. Mm. Mrs. Bigham had one shot through the head and another in her neck. And um, the older boy, Mac, had a bullet wound through his wrist and another in his temple. Um, and the doctor speculated that he had risen his hand up against the shot, up against the person coming toward him, and it had yeah. gone through his hand and, and into his hit. head. Oh, gosh. So he, um, he, Mac, they, you know, try to save him, but they don't. He dies mm-hmm. fairly quickly without ever regaining consciousness or saying anything. Okay. So now they have four bodies. Um, so now it's the defense's turn, right? They, they are saying their whole thing is going to be Smiley was crazy. He did this himself. So they have several business associates who worked with Smiley and saw him in the days leading up to the murders. Um, several said he had seemed depressed or out of sorts. Another one said he was normal and he'd never been depressed a day in his life. So um, several things were brought up about Smiley's financial situation, the 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 deeds he allegedly stolen. Do you remember this from I last remember, time, yeah. where he kind of stuffed him in his um, shirt or whatever from the from the clerk's office? What's interesting about that? <clears throat> a few days after the murders, May Bigham had brought those deeds to the clerk of court with Edmund's name on them, and the oh. date and the date changed. Oh no! So she goes in and she says. Um, I want to record these deeds. And, and I guess the clerk says, all right, I'll you know get to that in a second. Well, how long is it going to take? And he says, maybe an hour. So she goes away. She comes back in 40 minutes and says, are you done yet? And he's like, no, I haven't started. And she says, well, give them back to me. I'll, I'll bring them back another time. So mm. it's almost like she was like, oh, gosh, maybe they're going to just, like, this looks pretty sketchy that, yeah. you know, for whatever reason, she um, took those deeds back with her. Um, and then another thing they bring up is that when Smiley served as postmaster for the area, that there was a shortage found in his coffers. So like, almost like he had embezzled some money. It it turns out that it was like 70 cents or something (laughs) like that, like something very small. But the defense is trying to make a big deal of like, oh, he was in these horrible financial straits. He was going crazy. He was depressed leading up to this horrible thing. Um, just a, a side of my opinion, what's tough about all of this is that any witness to the actual events mm-hmm. or what happened right afterwards is either dead, right. accused of the murders, or related to the accused, mm-hmm. or scared to death of him. So they so felt like they could never tell the truth. Right. I mean, yeah. it's, it's a difficult thing. So after five days of testimony, it's time for closing arguments. Uh, the defense focuses on Smiley being suicidal, reminding the jury that the first thing the coroner said when he saw Smiley was, it certainly looks like suicide for me, to me, um, and the unreliability of the state's witnesses. So I just want to read a little from how um, 
J.A. Ziegler described that um, these closing arguments um, in his book called The Last of the Bigums. For the state's defense? Um, Oh, no, the prosecution. prosecution. These are the um, closing arguments. Okay. So... um, they're, they're talking about, this is the defense still, right? So he's saying, the state has failed to make out a case to dispute these facts. Are you going to believe that a, that bunch of Negroes, most of them confess criminals with no right of word in a court of justice? I beg you, gentlemen of the jury, not to send this man to the electric chair on such flimsy circumstantial evidence as the state has furnished you. It is far better that you turn a thousand guilty men loose than send to his death one innocent man. So you can see how he's, um, this is, um, the defense attorney is quite flowery and is, you know, (laughs) dramatic. Dramatic. Um, But just, you know, the the way that he's putting down the the black witnesses who have, you know, testified against them. Basically, they're saying all the evidence is circumstantial and they're trying to say you can't trust the ones that did, you know, testify against Mm him. Um, Now, Solicitor Gasquet is portrayed as being more powerful than the defense attorney, whether that's the biases of the authors Mm -hmm. of these books or the actuality. But um, when he makes his closing arguments, he points out some of the inconsistencies in the daughter's testimony, the fact that Smiley always had his wallet on him with a rubber band around it. Um, And yet that day when Smiley is found, the rubber band is around Smiley's wrist. And guess where they find the wallet? wallet? Oh, don't tell me. With on Edmund. I was going to say Edmund has it. Yep, he has it. Um, wow. Yep. And then he gets kind of theatrical himself. So here is um, kind of how he <clears throat> ends his closing arguments. And it's, it's kind of over the top. The most dramatic point in this trial came at the close of the argument of the solicitor as he waxed into new heights of eloquence. Remember, this is Ziegler, who is the editor of the Florence Morning News. So he's a writer and he's, you know, he sat through all these trials. He advanced toward the defendant until his tall form hovered menacingly over the now cringing Bigham. Edmund Bigham, he shouted, look. It's your mother. See her there kneeling at your side. She is crying out to you, my son, my son, Edmund. Why did you kill your poor old mother? She is begging you from her spirit body to tell these men the truth. I ask you, Edmund, to tell us now in your mother's name, in God's name, confess. Wow. Right? Like, I mean, can you imagine being in this court and... I mean, like you everyone's know, silent. Right. There's no television. There's very little radio at this point. Like, this is drama for these people. The, yes. the, the whole courtroom's just riveted. But Edmund just kind of lowers his eyes and, and, and sinks lower. And he's really not, um, he's not, doesn't seem to be affected. He doesn't, he, he, he doesn't start crying and confess or anything, mm-hmm. you know. Um, he even, then he, then he says, he, like, brings up the spirit of the McCracken boys. Like, can't you see them there beside you? Um, they're gone now. They're tiny spirits in another world. Their tiny voices are blending in this query. Tell us, Foster Edward, why did you kill us and Mar- Mama Marjorie? We had done you no harm. Oh, wow. He's imitating the boys. Right, exactly. So he's really trying to bring to life these victims. And the last line that, that Ziegler says is there was hardly a dry eye in that courtroom, as the, the solicitor concluded. So, um, you know, that's the end of the closing arguments. The judge is charging the jury, telling them what they need to do. But I think this is 
sort of not what you expect of judges. He addresses the lack of evidence or testimony, like saying like, no, nobody saw him shoot anybody. You know, there are no witnesses. But he brings up the tale of Robinson Crusoe. So, you know, if you know the story, he lived on a deserted island by himself. And um, he saw footprints in the sand leading him to his, his good man Friday. And basically, um, the judge says, gentlemen of the jury, that was circumstantial evidence. Robinson Crusoe did not see the man make those tracks on the beach, but there they were. He didn't make them. Someone else did. This evidence, though circumstantial, bore out his convictions that somebody else was on the island. So almost saying, you don't have to see the man making his footprints to know that there was somebody else here. Someone else. Yeah. Yeah. The jury goes away, deliberates three hours, and um, how do you think they come back? What do you think they decide? Guilty or not guilty? Um. Oh, my gosh. It's a, I have no idea. I don't think that... My gut tells me not guilty, but then I also think they come back with no verdict. Their judgment's guilty. Guilty? Yes. Um, and the judge says, I'm going to do the sentence immediately. Oh, wow. I thought this was going to drag on. Right. No, no. Um, Edmund asked if he could say a few words before the sentence is passed, oh. and, and the judge lets him. And listen to this part, because it becomes sort of prophetic to a certain extent. Um, remember, this is Edmund, who's just been found guilty of murdering his brother, um, addressing the court. Life is just as sweet to me, judge, as it ever was. I have placed my faith in the supreme ruler of us all. I am confident that there will be many of those that bore false witness against me die before I will. So he goes on and he talks about Pontius Pilate and Judas, basically comparing himself, making himself a Christ-like figure. That he, you know, he's, oh. um, you know, being persecuted by these people that have something against him when he's done nothing wrong. Mm-hmm. Um he says, I didn't kill my poor old mother, nor my sister Marjorie, or those two poor innocent little children. I couldn't have done it, Judge, and retained my reason. I would have done like Smiley did when he came to his senses and found out what he had done. I would have killed myself. Right? So he's, oh once gosh. again, just pushing on him. Yeah. And the judge, the judge cuts him off. He's like, all right, enough okay. of that. Um, I sentence you to death. Oh. By the electric chair. Wow. Which sort of surprised me for that time period. I didn't know that in 1921 they were already using an electric chair. But, um, me either. And not only does he say that, he says, and it's going to happen April 8th. So this and is this like is the soon. end of March. Yeah. You know, so the murder happened January 15th. The trial started March okay. 25th. I don't know how long it lasted. At maybe five days. And they found him guilty. Now he's sentenced to die on uh, April 8th. Okay. So just like now when there's a death penalty case, the lawyers immediately appeal, um, which stays the sentence, you know, so it doesn't automatically go into effect. Okay. Um, the Supreme, the state Supreme Court hears the case that summer, but they deny the appeal. Um, so bec- even though they denied it, he has to be resentenced because, like, I guess because that sentence went away because the date got moved or whatever. Okay. So that brings Edmund back to Florence County. I guess he's. I think he's, oh, he's taken to um, what they call the death house, which is like death row in Where? Columbia oh, okay. at the some state penitentiary in Columbia. And so they bring him back to Florence County to be resentenced. So this is June of 1922. So this is a year later that they've okay. been going through appeals and goes to the Supreme Court and everything. And this is in front of a new judge. 
Um, and you might think that this is just like perfunctory, right? Like they're just going to like give him a new date and that's going to be it. But there's a surprise at this hearing. I'm nervous. <laughs> <laughs> um, Edmund's lawyer says that he has new evidence. A confession letter from Smiley written to Edmund. <gasps> the crowd gasps. <laughs> um, what? You didn't bring this up on the yeah, first all trial? Of a sudden now right. <laughs> so the judge asked the lawyer to read the letter. Supposedly, May found it in some old things two months after the original trial the year before, along with a bunch of other letters that Smiley supposedly wrote to Edmund while they were living in Georgia, while Edmund and May were living in Georgia. Mostly talking about how Smiley couldn't make money farming and he wanted Edmund to come back to take over the farm and buy the land from them, which is, you know, what Edmund wants everybody to believe. Um, so the lawyer reads the supposedly final letter that Smiley sends to him that confesses. Uh, I'll read it real quick. My dear brother Edmund, dear brother Edmund, mother and Margie had the two signed deeds that had disappeared in their possession. So he's addressing mm-hmm. that. Causing trouble seems to be their pleasure. They took the money the PO department had me charged with and were the cause of Cleveland running off. If you remember, Cleveland, convicted for helping kill his wife down in Merrill's Inlet, took off before that. he ever got yeah. sentenced. Um, and I have to pay the bond. For years, I have had to leave home and pay board to be in peace, to make my calculations and plans. They poisoned father and tried to poison Letha's child after her death. Letha is their other sister. Um, when I found them with the deeds, I decided to kill the last one of them and leave no one to tell the tale. I am writing this to explain why I did this act. You will never see me again alive. Signed, L. Smiley Bigham. Oh, so wow. weird, right? So what did he he like killed four of them, then goes and and types this letter <laughs> and and then goes and kills himself. Kills himself yeah. It's a very like, you know, cogent letter for that to have happen. If you remember, we did talk about rumors that that they had poisoned the old man. Oh, so yeah. he's like bringing that up and putting it out there, which, you know, that was kind of against the Bigum code of we don't talk about things outside Anything, the family. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> um so, um, you know, that, of course, they have to, like, question these letters and, and, and bring into, you know, bring other people there. So this basically turns into another trial. Oh, no. um, so all the letters are typed except for the signature. And multiple people testified. About half said it was definitely Smiley's signature, and the other half said Smiley could not write a typewriter. And if he did, <laughs> he wouldn't have had that good of punctuation and grammar. Oh, my gosh. And also, these letters that they produced, you know, were supposedly over four years from 1917 to 1921, but they were all on the exact same sort of paper with the same watermark, and they all seemed equally aged, you know? One of them didn't look like it was from four years ago and and one from more recently, though, you know, supposedly they spanned all this time. So... June 10th, 1922, the judge says he's read over the transcript of the first trial and reviewed all the affidavits and letters, and he believes they're fake, okay. <laughs> and that Edmund had a fair first trial, and guess what? You're still going to be executed. Great. <laughs> <laughs> July 10th, they set the date for. So this is June 10th, so one month away. Um, once again, he goes and like compares himself to Christ and, and saying that if he's executed, it will be because of popular opinion, not because of evidence. Um, again, the lawyer appeals for the conviction to be overturned. Um, this time, 
they're like, we, we need somebody else on our team. Like, the defense is like, we got to get somebody bigger. Mm-hmm. So they go to this guy named, he's, he's actually a judge, but he's also known as a very great defense attorney, um, Judge Mendel Smith of Camden. And Ziegler um, quotes him as being called a giant among defense attorneys in the East. He is to the Southeast what Darrow is to the West. So he compares him to Clarence Darrow. Um, so, you know, that stays the, ex- the July execution. The hearings... September 1st of 1922, um, and that Judge Smith, who's the lawyer, addresses the court on behalf of Edmund's defense, and supposedly he's brilliant. He focuses on the mood or the feeling of the courtroom in that first trial, how basically the court of public opinion was against Edmund, Mm -hmm. not necessarily factor evidence, which we do know. It's just circumstantial evidence right now. You know, there is, they, they don't have fingerprints at this point. You know, they're not, there's nothing like that. Um, but the Supreme Court says, we're not going to overturn this verdict, but the appeal can be heard down in circuit court. So basically, they don't make a decision. They send it back to the lower court. So now they try a different tact. Um, they appeal for a trial in a different venue because of the biased temperament of the crowd and locals, right. which, you know, we've we seen that before. Exactly. Area. With the, the Sydney Moore trial, which if, um, you know, if other people are, have listened to our Heather Elvis podcast they'll they'll know more about that but you know this is something that's been going on for a long time it gets delayed for a while but finally in late march 1924 um it's heard and the new judge this time says that the previous trials have not been fair and that his entire case should be heard again oh, no. right so we're back back basically we're back where we were three years ago yeah he's um presumed innocent where like his first charge it's it's like those guilty Verdicts and never death penalties never yeah. happened. Exactly. So the third trial, if you count that second appeal as a trial, um, is held in Ori County in Conway. I was say, where did yes, they take it? Yes, <laughs> they, they brought it here to Ori County or Ori County um, in Conway rather than Florence, and it starts on October twenty third, nineteen twenty four. Um, I thought this was interesting, but for the first time since he was arrested, his picture is taken by like a oh. newspaper photographer. Oh. I have not been able to find a copy of that picture anywhere. I'm, I, I need to do some more digging in the old Florence Morning News um, archives, but I guess he had always been protected or they like brought him into courthouses from the back way or something. But this time the photographer catches him like coming out of the police officer's car um, going in. So and that's interesting. Hype, like when it when they brought it to, here to Oregon County, I mean, I'm just curious. Was it, like, the talk of the whole county? Absolutely. Yeah. And now it wasn't just a talk of Florence and Marion. It's a talk now of Ori, too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the same as the first trial, where it's just tons of buggies and people and just crowded everywhere. So while he's testifying, the solicitor asked, asks him a question. And according to Ziegler, he looks at Edmund. The, the Mr. Steele looks at Edmund and sort of blanches, right? He just kind of goes white. And then he keels over and dies. No. On the witness stand of a heart attack. (gasps) And the crowd goes crazy. I mean, this is nuts, right? And apparently there's like pandemonium. People are rushing toward the door because actually he is the fifth person to die suddenly in the past three years who had testified against Edmund. (gasps) Now, he's the only one to die during During, the court hearing and... um, but other people you know, on the stand. But yes, the other people. And like suddenly, not like from old age, but like. This is crazy. Yes. So, you know, they, they say that it's the, the Bigham curse and, and that yeah. Edmund has put some hoodoo on, you know, the people that testify against him. So 
anyway, that's nuts. So that's the first thing. So things settle down. The judge recesses for the day. They come back. On the third day of testimony, there's a little more drama, but nothing fatal this time. So um, if you remember, Marjorie's adopted boys were John and Leo McCracken. Yes. Their father, John McCracken, supposedly the father of two boys, um, he's the one who first swore out warrants on Edmund. Like, even before police charged him, if you remember, he swore out a warrant. So, that, so he takes the stand. Okay. Um, he says he was there the day the murders happened, and he saw Edmund follow Smiley into the woods with a gun. And this is pretty damning, right? Like, this is the missing link in this, you know, there's this strong set of circumstantial evidence that the prosecution has, but they've, this yeah. missing link is, is now there, that somebody has actually seen him go in with a gun, whether it's true or not. And why is it just now and coming up? And why is it just now coming up, exactly. I don't know whether he did not testify at the first trial or what, but... Yeah, like now all of a sudden there's 50 witnesses that they've gotten together for this I one? I think there were a lot the first trial, too, but I don't yeah. know if it was that many. But this, So this is where it gets interesting. The defense is ready for this, though, right? They have vetted all of the witnesses. Um, and, they, and they say, can Andy Smothers please stand up? Uh, so this little man in the crowd stands up, and they ask him if he recognizes McCracken, who's on the stand. And Smothers says yes, he does. He says that um, he's the man who ran away with his son and his wife who was about to give birth to another child. And that the oh. little boys are actually his children, oh, no. not McCracken's. But the defense isn't done yet. So they say, is Mary McCracken in the room? And this, like, tall, sickly woman, obviously very poor, stands up, too, and um, says, yeah, I recognize him, too. He married me about five years ago, and I later found out he had two other living wives. Um, And when I confronted him about it, he beat me, left me with our three kids. So basically, that missing link that the prosecution has been like, yeah, we got it, (laughs) totally discredited, right? This, This man is... Is awful. Yeah. And we now know he wasn't actually the father of the two boys either. Um, but despite all that, we have not gotten to the most dramatic thing to happen in this third trial. I know you're like, what else could it be? <laughs> right. Um, so after McCracken, the guy the prosecution had been hoping was going to be a witness to clinch the deal, you know, after he gets yeah. raked over the coals by these character witnesses, the prosecution calls Dr. J.D. Snyder, a surgeon from Florence Memorial Hospital, to take the stand. Um, yeah. So I'm going to read you how uh, Ziegler describes this part of the trial. Um, As the attorneys for the defense began to look through the records of the first trial, they're they're like, wait, who's this? You know, they're trying to Mm. find this in the 50 witnesses. Um, The prosecution says, needn't look, gentlemen. The doctor has a little surprise for you. Something new. Yay. All right. Let's hear it. (laughs) Um, Dr. Smizer then told of having gone to the Bigham graveyard that Monday before, and with other witnesses and doctors, they exhumed the body of Mrs. Dora Bigham. Remember, this is three and a half years ago. Uh They found the coffin submerged in water, which had kept the body in a remarkable state of preservation for the three years since the killing. He then told the sickening details of scalping the head to locate the entrance points of the bullets of decapitating the head from the body of scooping out the brains with a spoon of of finding splinters of bone in the brainy substance of the ragged hole at the base of the skull that the bullet had passed through the medulla oblongata and came out through her jaw 
Mr. Aerosmith interrupted to ask the question, what effect does an injury to the medulla have on a human body? Dr. Smizer answered, the medulla being severed, you would get the same reaction as if you cut a person's head off. Question, it's been testified here that Mrs. Bigham walked to the road to hail Edmund as he drove back from Foxworth, telling him that Smiley has killed us all. Now, doctor, would it have been possible for a person wounded, as you have just described, to have walked 30 yards and say anything? No, came the answer. Wow. So they've actually exhumed the mother's body, right? But not just that. They've decapitated it, which they've described in full detail. Mm. And they brought it to the courtroom. Oh, no. They bring the skull out. No. They have it in like a, a bag behind the, the, um, the judge's bench. And they like give it to the doctor. And he's like holding Mrs. Bigham's skull in his hands. And he like shows where the bullets were and like how they went in and, and how. I mean, this is just. I can't imagine Edmund's face like sitting there when they do Right? That. Exactly. Or the whole court. I Everyone, mean, yeah. this is such a, such a drama for them. <laughs> so um, even after all this, the defense has not given up. They're like, okay, we're going to put Edmund back on the stand. He goes through the details of the day with heartfelt sincerity, just like he did the first time. He talks about holding his mother as she took her last breath and declared to him that Smiley has killed us all. You know, he goes back through that. Um, and then this is how Ziegler describes that scene after Edmund has um, testified when he's talking about Smiley. He probably killed himself. About 6.30, Mr. Hyman heard a shot in the direction of which Smiley's body was later found, and I felt sure that as my brother's reason slowly returned to him and he realized the enormity of his crime, there was but one compelling thing to do, and that was kill himself. Right at this point, Mr. Smith interposed with a dramatic scene. He approached the accused man with the skull of the mother in his outstretched hand. He spoke in a commanding voice. Edmund Bigham, look at this skull. The state of South Carolina has broken the sacred rest of your poor old mother. They have cut her head from her body to show the wound that killed her. Look at that jagged hole under the base of the skull. Edmund, did you do that? With the eyes, with his eyes full of wet tears and in a most dramatic posture, the last of the Biggums stood erect with his eyes raised heavenwards, made this strange reply. God in heaven, look upon me. If I could have done that to my dear old mother, the woman who taught me how to pray at her bended knee, if I could have stilled the voice of the kindest comforter I ever knew, oh God, if I did that, strike me stone dead. Oh. The crowd is won over a bit, right? There's Everybody's oh, no. crying oh, again. No. And I mean, it's the author says that if they had taken the verdict at that time, Bigham would have been innocent because he put on such a good show. It's almost scary. And not almost. It is scary. It is. I, I totally agree. Um, so one of the attorneys that's working with the prosecution starts to cross-examine him and basically brings up all the things he or his family have been accused of doing in the past. Aren't you responsible for that murder in Georgia? Uh, didn't you drive a nail into that young man's ear and right. kill him? Didn't you put your left arm under a train to try to collect $5,000 yeah. in insurance money? Um, and, you know, the defense is objecting. And, and after objecting several times, 
the defense attorney, that, that judge that I was telling you about, who's now acting as their defense attorney, he gets really angry, nearly shouting at the prosecuting attorney. He's nearly shouting that the prosecuting attorney is, quote, breaking every rule of procedure and knows better. And all of a sudden, punches are being thrown. The lawyers are no. in a brawl. One of them mistakenly hits another lawyer that's, like, beside him. The the de- the solicitor, they're... They're fighting in the middle of the courtroom. I didn't see that coming. Right? It's a mess. So the judge calls things off for the day, but you can see how this, this continues to be theatrical. Um, so everything finishes. They're closing arguments. The judge charges the jury, and four hours later, they come back with a verdict. What do you think it is this time, Audrey? Oh, no. <laughs> um, I hope it's guilty. Just tell me. Guilty. Okay. Good. And the judge sentenced him to death by electrocution uh, for the third okay. time. Mm-hmm. Third time. But of course, Edmund's attorneys appeal on the George Steele thing. They say he died before we had a chance to cross-examine him. Right. So him. right, we just found yeah. a fair trial and several other things. So what happens? The Supreme Court grants him a new trial. In February 1926, about a year and a half after the last conviction, and more than five years after the murder. Um, there's several other delays. May, the wife, claims that she had a conjugal visit with him and got pregnant. And so they need to delay it so that she won't be embarrassed um, to be pregnant and, you know, with this prisoner, you know. Yeah. Right, exactly. So finally, the fourth trial is scheduled for April 1927. Um, one thing that's interesting to point out is that while Edmund has been living in the death house, as, as they mm-hmm. called it, 12 men have been put to death. You know, like it, he, he's like outweighed, you know, several oh, yeah. other people who have, you know, there. right. Um, so the trial begins April 4th, 1927, and I'll keep this one quick. After a few witnesses testify, the attorneys stand up and say basically they've reached a plea deal guilty for no death penalty. Wow. Again, much like we've seen in modern, many modern cases that we've covered. So there's this sort of public outcry after this. Like, on sure. one side, like, the denouncement of the death penalty in general, several papers writing that, uh, um, you know, that the death penalty isn't fairly um, executed, just not the right word, but, you know, across the board, it's not the same for everybody, that um, if it were a, a black man or a poor white man, that they would have been put to death many times over. Mm. Um, but that Edmund, you know, has just been going back and forth with the courts. Um, so Edmund Bigham stayed in the South Carolina penitentiary for 39 years, despite multiple appeals on his behalf, um, even till after his defense attorney died. His wife and daughters disconnected themselves from him and haven't really been able to find much about them. Um, I did find Louise living in Detroit in the mid-50s, but I think she died without having children. And anyway, you know, the line kind of, kind of peters out. So in 1959, State Senator Ralph Gasque from Marion County, he's a distant relative of, of the solicitor, okay. um, took up Edmund's case for some reason and said if he were to be paroled, that he, the, the state senator, would secure a home and work for him. And he also asked that the other four pending murder charges against him be dropped. So remember, he was never even tried for Marjorie, for his mother, others. or the boys. Yeah. yeah. Um, and somehow they parole him. So June 1960, Edmund is released. And you have to realize this is almost 40 years after this awful crime happened. And while it's still talked about, there aren't as many people around who knew the family. There's none of the Biggums left. Remember, Ziegler's book is called The Last of the Biggums. Mm-hmm. 
So he gets out. He's he's around 79 or 80. It's really interesting. They don't know his actual age. Okay. Um, and he's sort of a local celebrity. Everybody knows of him, mm-hmm. but nobody's ever met him until now, you know, except for the, the older folks. He's sort of celebrated in a, in, a, in a tempered way. Not like everybody thinks he's innocent, but, you know, he's, he's of local interest. Um, he's given a job and a place to live by the state senator. Okay. One interesting thing, in November of that year, he got out in June, so November 1960, he apparently writes the warden of the prison to ask if he can come back. Why? He had spent more of his life in jail than even out of it. Mm -hmm. It reminds me of Shawshank Redemption Mm -hmm. when the sweet old man, you know, gets out and he just wants to go back. Um, But he he later says, like, oh, he was sick. He didn't know what he was writing. You know, it says, oh, I take it back. I don't really want to go anywhere. So he lives a bit longer in Marion um, under Gatsby's care until he dies June 13th, 1962. Um, And... The book ends with friends said Bigham had no surviving relatives. Wow. So we've gone through a lot. I mean, we've That's gone through lot. generations of this family that, you know, was troubled, had tr- troubled many other people, and um, manipulative. Manipulative. Yeah, scary, yeah. liars. What I think would be interesting is to talk to one of the um, the jurors. Mm-hmm. Have you? No, I have not found that anybody ever did that. Yeah. Um, You know, of course, they'd all be dead now because it was back in the 20s. But um, that would be interesting. If they were to have written a book or something. Yeah. But the the books that you used for the researcher were. Yeah, were were really great. Really well written. And that's all. This is all the literature that I've really been able to find about them. So there's a lot of newspaper accounts of it. But it's interesting that, um, you know, much like now, they, they tend to have different views on the same set of facts. Yes. So, um, so I hope you have enjoyed learning about the Bigums and, um, thank everybody for listening. We hope that you, um, have listened to our first, second, and now our third podcast in the, um, Bigum family. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm never going to forget them. They're, they're Me either. A, a fascinating and, and sad, uh, family. So thanks, Audrey. Thank you, Ashley. Thank you for listening to Carolina True Crime, a podcast presented by WMBF News. To learn more about the story you heard here and other mysteries and crimes from across the Carolinas, go to our website, wmbfnews.com.